You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. In the late 90s, there was a show called Early Edition. Some of you may be familiar with it. I watched it a few times. The main character received tomorrow's news today. So if there was a tragedy that was going to take place, this young man knew about it in advance and he did everything he could to prevent the tragedy from taking place. Now I want you to imagine if you could do that. If you knew tomorrow's news today, you could save a drowning dog. You could prevent a child from being bullied. You could ensure that a home was not burned down. You could keep a bomb from going off. There's any number of things that you could do. Some smaller, some greater. But if you knew tomorrow's news today, it would be life-changing. What if I told you That as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given you the early edition. Scripture. You have a copy of tomorrow's news today. And we have the opportunity to then live our lives accordingly. Now I can read some of your minds. You're saying, Keith, I know where this is headed. You're going to talk about prophecy. You're going to talk about the end times. Well... I am. It's a doctrine called eschatology. Now, eschatology just simply means the study of last things or the end times. Now, some of you are saying, Keith, I don't want you to talk about these things. I mean, I am not interested in prophecy. And again, I sympathize. I can feel your pain because Well-meaning Christians have overused and even abused prophecy in some unusual and bizarre ways. And so we have camps of people today. We have what we could call eschatomaniacs. I mean, they eat, drink, and sleep the end times. They're obsessive, compulsive. They can hardly talk about anything else. But then we have another extreme, eschatophobics. They argue no one can understand the end times. Christians disagree on every point of the end times. So let me be like a theological ostrich and bury my head in the sand. Both of these extremes are understandable. But both of the extremes are inadequate. They're incorrect. God wants tomorrow's news to change how we live today today. So I don't want to get caught up in a lot of eschatology because if I preach too much eschatology, you're going to say, this is gobbledygook, this is gibberish, I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense to me, and no one agrees anyway. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to have hope? Do you want to have hope? It's no mystery that we are living in a seemingly hopeless world. And eternally speaking, it is a hopeless predicament 
unless we have the hope of Jesus Christ. So do you want to have hope today? Do you want to have hope and certainty about what's going to happen for loved ones that have died or will die? Do you want to have hope on your imminent death? Whether it's today or 50 or 60 years from now. Do you want to have hope in knowing what the next event is on God's prophetic time clock? All of us want this type of hope. And the Apostle Paul is going to give us a passage on hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So let's turn there together. 1 Thess chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We're in the midst of a series entitled, No Rest for the Righteous. And some of you are like, that's right. And Thanksgiving and Christmas is right around the corner. And I'm feeling like I'm weary. And I haven't had any rest. Well, spiritually speaking, I hope today you receive rest. What the Apostle Paul does is he shares with us two confidences, two certainties, two hopes. The first hope is this, hope in your resurrection. Verses 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul is going to say, if Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave, what that means is those who have placed their faith in him, they'll do the same. That's Paul's bottom line. Now look at verse 13. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul here downright implies or suggests ignorance is not bliss. In other words, there is a sad state of affairs that the Thessalonians do not know what has happened to those who died before Jesus returned? See, the Thessalonians are assuming that Jesus is going to return. They're anticipating him to return in their lifetime. But they didn't think through the fact that some of their loved ones might die before Jesus returned. They did not have the necessary knowledge about what Scripture would teach. Now, you're probably wondering, well, why? I mean, Keith, you've made such a big deal about the Thessalonian church. It's like the best church in the entire New Testament. Well, we need to back up to what we talked about in September. We talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy entered into Thessalonica with the goal of planting a church. People all of a sudden responded to the good news of Jesus. They turned from idols they began living radically different lives. And these men of God were so fruitful, a group of religious leaders became incensed and they drove them out of town. So Paul and his fellow ministers, they only had a few weeks with the Thessalonians. So the Thessalonians didn't have an understanding of prophecy and all the specifics of what would happen. So Paul chooses to download some truth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you look carefully at this verse, it says, 
Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. And he brings up the concept of sleep. He says, I don't want you to be concerned about those who have fallen asleep. Now you may be saying, Keith, is Paul afraid to use the D word? Death. No. Sleep is a euphemism for death. But sleep is only used of believers in Jesus Christ. Paul's point is, unbelievers die, believers sleep. And he uses the term asleep or sleep in verses 13, 14, and 15. Just three verses consecutively. He's trying to drive home the point. Now, what does he mean? He means that when a believer dies... Their soul and spirit immediately go into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about that for a moment. No matter how a believer dies, before the doctor can pronounce the person dead, that person is in the presence of Jesus. The Christian in the truest sense of the word doesn't even taste death. Because immediately with your last breath, with your last heartbeat, you are in the presence of Jesus. So what does it mean that believers sleep? It means their bodies sleep in the grave. And yes, bodies eventually decompose. But just like God created the universe with a word, he's going to raise bodies from dust And he's going to give all of us who have placed our faith in Christ new glorified bodies. But regardless, the moment your loved one passes, the moment your friend passes who has believed in Jesus Christ, they have received an honorable discharge straight into the embrace of Jesus Christ. Why do I even have to bring this up? Because the timing could not be better. I couldn't have scripted this. We are right in the midst of Thanksgiving week and Christmas is quickly approaching. One of the most difficult aspects of being a pastor, if not the most difficult for me personally, is pastoring people that I love deeply who have experienced tragic loss. They've lost children. They've lost spouses that they've been married to for decades. They've lost parents and siblings. And there is a grief, a mourning, even a loss that seems to be unbearable. Even when we're talking about Christians. I think when we anticipate Thanksgiving and Christmas, we realize there's going to be a vacant chair in our living room that was once filled by a loved one. There's going to be a seat at the family dinner table that isn't filled by a loved one. We're going to go through a difficult time of the year and we're going to feel loss. We're going to feel pain. And here's the difficulty. Having pastored for many years in different contexts, the loss And the pain doesn't last just a few days and then you get over it. You buck up and you have joy all the time. No, 
This side of heaven, the loss may last for the rest of your life, the rest of my life. Well-meaning Christians have taken this verse and they've said, don't grieve, don't mourn. But here's the problem with that. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, they wore sackcloth. They put ashes on their head. And they didn't grieve like we do in the West. They lamented. And they wailed. They screamed and they shrieked. And their mourning went on for days as they remembered the passing of their loved one. And then obviously it goes on and on and on. Because we're separated from our loved ones. We're separated from our friends. The greatest thing that we can do, Crossroads, particularly during Thanksgiving and Christmas, is to come alongside of people who are grieving and mourning and love them well. That begins by simply listening to people who are suffering through loss. We've said over and over, God has given us two ears and one mouth because he expects us to listen twice as much as we talk. And yet, because some of us don't know how to handle grief and someone who is angry or someone who is experiencing deep, deep loss, we fill what should be listening time with talking time. And that's not helpful. We need to listen to people. Even if their response is not always godly or as mature as we might like. Some of us will never know what it's like to lose someone and how we would respond. There's going to be anger. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be sadness at different seasons. We need to listen. We need to hear these people. And then we need to come alongside our sisters and brothers and we need to be willing to touch them on the shoulder, to put our arms around them, to embrace them, and when it's appropriate, to even hold them when they sob and when they weep. Scripture is clear. We need to weep with those who weep. We need to bear the burdens of those who are hurting. If we've listened, if we've touched, we affirm we affirm them for how they're walking through this grief. And we pray for them. And we pray with them. We don't come with scripture verses. We don't come with theological answers. We let the individual who is mourning share with us scripture verses and theological thoughts that they have. They don't need that from us at that point. They need the Lord to speak to their hearts. And then there's something so powerful about a believer sharing what the Lord has impressed upon them to us. See, Jesus grieved when Lazarus passed away. And there are many reasons, theologically speaking, why he grieved. But we certainly know from a human perspective, Lazarus was one of Jesus' best earthly friends. And he saw Martha and Mary sobbing, grieving when their brother passed away. And that cut Jesus to the quick. Even though he knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus in a matter of moments. Grief is a human emotion that cannot be smothered or short-circuited. Crossroads needs to be a safe place for people who are grieving. 
because in the future, there's going to be a lot of grief at Crossroads and throughout our country and throughout our world. And we need to be a place that nurtures people and cares for people and loves people. Now, with that said, verse 13 is clear. We do not grieve as those without hope. There it is. Hope is the confident assurance, the absolute certainty that if a believer has passed, they are in the presence of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is not a nanosecond where you are separated from the Lord. When you pass, you're in his presence. It's that simple. And that means we have a hope in the midst of our grief that our loved one is at home. That we do not say goodbye, we say good night. And shortly, we will say good morning when we see our loved one in the presence of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the only hope we have in a hopeless world. Now, verse 14 explains further why we can have this hope. Paul says, for if we believe, or since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, I want you to highlight or underline, we believe. Doctrinal statements or what's called statements of faith, those are just statements of a church's belief. They tend to start with, we believe. Now, with many statements, they can be seemingly divisive because sometimes churches write too much detail on issues that not all Christians agree upon. There's less certainty on some issues. But I want you to understand one thing very clearly. There is absolute certainty on verse 14. We believe two things at Crossroads Bible Church. Jesus died and Jesus arose. In order to be a Christian, that's the bare minimum of belief. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus died and arose. That's the bare minimum of the gospel. And then it's fleshed out in a more fuller expression. So at Crossroads, while we have certain views and convictions, our primary conviction is always going to be clarity on the gospel because that's what separates a man or woman ultimately from God. Paul says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I want to make sure that you see that because often we read our Bible so quickly we don't catch things or we don't emphasize what writers are trying to say. Where are our loved ones, our grandparents, our parents, our spouses, our children, our siblings who have believed in Jesus Christ who have passed away? Where are they? They're in the presence of Jesus. They've never been happier. They're experiencing eternal bliss. But that phrase in verse 14 teaches that they will one day return 
in what is called the rapture, which we will discuss in verse 17, they will come with Jesus and we will meet them in the air. Jesus is going to bring them from heaven to us. That's where your loved ones are who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The hope, the confidence, it's just, it's overwhelming to me. Because I have lost loved ones. And I will soon lose other loved ones. But I have a hope. I have a confidence. Now verse 15 makes this even more clear. Paul says, let me explain myself further. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul says, there's a word of the Lord. This word of the Lord is not in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord that Paul is going to talk about is not clearly laid out in the New Testament prior to the writing of this book. So certain scholars believe that this word of the Lord was given directly to Paul. Paul experienced a time with the Lord in what's called the third heaven. Paul obviously had incredible intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's likely that the Lord revealed some, some truth to him about the doctrine that we're going to talk about called the rapture. The rapture in simple form is the fact that Jesus will return and he will take his church, the bride of Christ, to be with him forever. So Paul argues that those who have already passed away, they are in no way disadvantaged. See, many well-meaning Christians will say, I want to be a part of the rapture generation. I want to be alive when Jesus returns. When he cracks the sky, I want to go and be with him. And I understand that, but we haven't thought this through carefully. Paul is implying that those who have already passed away are the ones who have the advantage. Because from a human perspective, they're in the presence of Jesus. From a human perspective, they have more time with the Savior than we do. When I almost died of COVID, when I was on oxygen for six weeks last year, every day, Lori and I thought I was going to pass. And the only thing I could think about is, I can't wait to be in the presence of Jesus. I, I just was so excited. Now, I wanted to ensure that my wife and three children were cared for, but there was no fear of death. There was just a desire to be with Christ. And I think one of the grave difficulties of even mature Christians is when we have the opportunity to preach the greatest sermon of our lives on our death day or as our death approaches, we're filled with anxiety and fear. And our neighbors are watching, our coworkers are watching, our classmates are watching, our family members are watching who have never placed their faith in Christ. And what we've told them is, I have an eternal hope. I know where I'm going to go. Do you want to know as well? But then when the Lord's about to call us home, we fall apart. I don't mean to guilt anyone, to manipulate anyone, to coerce anyone. I'm just saying I want you to anticipate your day of sleep. And I want you to see it as a sermon that you will preach 
that you will preach to people who need hope. See, those who get to go into the presence of Jesus first, in my opinion, they're the ones that are advantaged, if you will. But in the end, we will all join Jesus. Those who have gone before us, those who will come after us. Paul explains what this event will be like in verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself, this is Jesus, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So I want you to picture this. Jesus Christ sets up the event that's called the rapture with a loud shout. And we've heard him shout before. John chapter 11, once again, Lazarus, come forth. Now, when Jesus said that, I'm sure every body, literal body, in every grave wanted to respond. I mean, if the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords shouts, you want to come out of that grave. Jesus will one day shout, and it will be to call you and me home if we've placed our faith in Christ. So there's Jesus' shout, but then there's the archangel who is present with him, who is also likely shouting, the voice of the archangel. Daniel suggests that there may be multiple archangels, but there's only one archangel in Scripture, and that's Jude 9. That's Michael. Michael took Lucifer's place as the worship pastor in heaven. Satan said, no. I want to be God. He took a whole lot of angels with him and they fell into rebellion. And Michael became the archangel. The archangel Michael is likely the one in play and he's connected with the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God sounds forth victory. It sounds forth the return of a great king. And it's likely that Michael is blowing this trumpet. So you have these three spectacular events. You have Christ's shout. You have likely Michael's voice. You have Michael blowing the trumpet of God. And then the text says that ultimately the dead in Christ will rise first. So those loved ones who have gone before us. Their bodies will be brought from dust and will be instantaneously glorified. 1 Corinthians says it happens in the twinkling of an eye. I want you to blink your eyes just really quickly. I hope everyone has done that. The twinkling of an eye is faster than the blink of an eye. All of this takes place in the twinkling of an eye. Now, when we consider the fact that the dead in Christ rise first, the reason for that is they're six feet under. And those who are alive are on earth. And so we together go up simultaneously and we're ultimately brought together in the ultimate reunion. Now, people always wonder about verse 16. Is this silent or does the world know what's going on? 
Godly women and men see it differently. I think it seems pretty clear that it's loud and proud, and it's going to be known by the world. And I take that view. And besides, I don't want Oprah trying to explain this away when it's a silent issue. I mean, the truth is there's going to be confusion and chaos in our world when this event happens. But we have tomorrow's news today. We, we know exactly what's going on. So Paul makes it clear. We have a certain hope. We hope in our bodily resurrection. It's as good as done. Why is that the case? Because Jesus Christ died and he arose. And if that's true of Jesus and we're in union with Jesus, that will be true for us as well. Now his second hope or conviction or certainty is hope in your reunion. He's going to say that your family members, your friends, the body of Christ in the last 2,000 years, we're going to come together in a united fashion. Verse 17 says beautifully, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, many of you probably have heard that the word rapture is not in the scriptures. That's actually true. But let me explain just briefly and as simply as I can what's going on. That phrase translated caught up is a Greek verb, harpazo. Now, I love the Greek language. I've devoted my life to it. But I started learning Greek as an 18-year-old using a cartoon system. And one of my favorite Greek words of all time is this word, harpazo. And I learned the verb. I memorized the verb because this cartoon system, father and son who created it, they had a fisherman on a boat. And the fisherman was fishing, but he was using a harpoon. He was using a harpoon to harpazo a whale. So he took this harpoon and, and then he snatched it. He seized it. He caught it up. So harpazo, with the word picture of a harpoon and a humorous fisherman actually harpooning a whale, demonstrates the term means to seize, to catch up, to snatch up. That's what's going on. So you're probably wondering, well, what about the rapture? Well, the Bible was translated into the Latin language. And Jerome and others took this word harpazo, and they translated it rapturo. The noun then is raptura. My daughter is a Latin tutor. So those of you who have some Latin experience or you've been through the classical school system, you get this. So our word rapture is in the Latin Bible. But if you prefer, harpazo. At the end of the day, Jesus seizes and snatches and catches us up to be with him for all of eternity. But here's what I want you to see. In the clouds. Every time I look at the clouds, I can't help but think the clouds in Scripture represent Jesus Christ and God the Father's presence and glory. And so again, there's 
some uncertainty. Is this referring to literal clouds or God's presence and His glory? The answer, yes. Both. I can't look at the clouds. We shouldn't be able to look at the clouds without saying, God and Jesus are present and they're going to return. They're going to return for us. It is a beautiful thought. Notice the last phrase, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I want you to highlight and underline that as well because Paul is saying when you pass and then when the rapture happens, you're with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. Just thinking about that almost makes a person want to jump out a stained glass window. I mean, we have no concept of eternity because we're bound by space and time. But God is outside space and time. And for all of eternity, we will be with the Lord and we will be with one another and we will be with our loved ones. And that's because of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? How could we summarize all the technicalities and by the way, I've made this as simple as possible. Our present union brings a future reunion. By that, I mean we are in union with Jesus Christ and with God the Father because we've believed in the person and work of Jesus. That union is going to bring about a future reunion with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this. There's probably a reunion happening every day of the week. There's family reunions. There's friendship reunions. There's veterans reunions. I mean, bands are making all kinds of money along with solo acts coming back for reunion tours. There is a reunion going on every day of the week. But the reunion that we're talking about, it's unlike any reunion. When the church, the bride of Christ, is gathered up to spend eternity with one another and with the Lord in worship, in service for all of eternity. What's Paul's bottom line? Verse 18 is rich. Therefore, in light of all that Paul has said in verses 13 through 17, therefore, comfort Comfort one another with these words. This is Paul's opportunity of a lifetime. He could have said, construct eschatology charts. Write class notes in systematic theology. Detail out everything related to the end times. Make sure you're correct. I mean, we know that many Christians disagree on this topic, but you better get this right. He doesn't say any of that. He says, comfort one another with these words. It's a present tense command. On a daily basis, we should be comforting believers. We should be comforting believers with Paul's command. And I want you to see, this is not some independent pursuit of an eschatomaniac. It's not designed for scholars. 
It's designed for disciples. Even if we don't get all the details right, do we comfort one another with the truth that Jesus is coming back for his church and that those who have passed are in his presence right now? Are we comforting one another with that? Some of your English versions have encourage. That's a great translation. But most New Testament scholars prefer comfort. And I think the context is best served by comfort. What are you doing this Thanksgiving and Christmas to comfort people who are experiencing loss? What are you doing to encourage people who need to press on in their pursuit of Jesus? See, this is a passage that talks about the rapture. We do need to get the big picture, and that is comforting believers. But there is still the truth that Jesus Christ, I would argue, can return today. He can return right now while I'm preaching. Now, I could be wrong. I've taught eschatology in Bible colleges for over 20 years. And you know what I've learned? The more I've learned, the less I know. And the more I teach and the more I study, the more humble I am. That's what I know about eschatology. And here's the other thing. When you have views on the end times that godly men and women disagree upon, you hold your own convictions with humility and open hands. This is how I present my views on these types of issues. At this present time in my study, I think this view has the least amount of problems associated with it. I don't say, this is the right view. I don't say even this is the best view. I say this view has the least amount of problems associated with it. I do believe that Jesus Christ could come today. And that inspires me and motivates me to wait and watch, to be fixated on Jesus. I'm not looking at signs of the times. I'm not looking even necessarily at all that's going on in the world. Those are confirmations that we're one day closer. But I believe Jesus Christ could return today, and I believe he could have returned years ago. If I'm right, that changes the way we live. Our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes, our words, our deeds, it changes everything. If Jesus could return today. Many of us regularly call people on our smartphones. And we're living in a day where people don't answer their phones anymore. I mean, there, there's too much scam, there's too many telemarketers and all of that. So, Phones go to voicemail. And you typically hear something like this, I can't pick up right now, but I'll call you back. Now, if it's a reliable person that you've called, that person could call you back in five minutes, five hours, five days, and in some cases, five weeks. But the person is going to call you back. You just don't know when. If you've called out to Jesus Christ, He's coming back. He's coming back. And he's calling you home. Is it five days from now? I don't know. If 
five weeks, five months, five years. I don't know, but I want to live ready. I want to wait. I want to work. I want to watch. I want to live in light of his coming. And I want to comfort believers with the fact that Jesus is going to fulfill his promises. And if we are in union with Jesus Christ, we will have a future reunion. It's based upon a present union. Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ if you haven't? If so, you will have the ultimate family reunion one day. Let's pray together. Father, my heart is heavy right now for those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are present, those who are watching online, those who have no hope, at least no biblical hope. They don't have certainty. They don't have assurance of where they'll spend eternity. May each of us settle this issue this afternoon. May we acknowledge our sin. May we turn to the Savior, just like the Thessalonians. May we believe that we have missed the mark of your standard of perfection. And may we trust in the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, and he offers us an eternal relationship, a family reunion, if we will just believe. Help us to do that. And then to take steps of discipleship where we truly anticipate your return. Lord, we know that if Crossroads begins to anticipate the return of Jesus and we live every day and every moment with that anticipation, it'll change us as a church. And we will want to comfort people. We will want to encourage people. We will do all that we can to build up the body and to share the good news of Jesus with a world that's without hope. Grant us grace, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the comfort that you've given us, knowing that when we pass, we're in your presence. We worship you, Lord, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.